Chapter 16 of Napoleon, a short biography. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Russell Newton. Napoleon, a short biography by R. M. Johnson. Chapter 16 Elba. Return of the Bourbons. Congress of Vienna. French dissatisfaction. Napoleon leaves Elba, his progress to Paris, changed situation, attitude of the powers, Champ de Mai. The return of the Bourbons, which few men thought possible a month before it happened, changed the whole aspect of the events that had brought it about. It was now clearly perceived that the triumph of the Allies meant more than the fall of Napoleon, and that the autocratic system challenged by the revolution, modified by the empire, was to be reasserted. The powers were now intent on readjusting the territorial divisions of Europe on such a footing as the old order of things and their recent successes appeared to make suitable, but it was soon found, not unnaturally, that it would be a difficult matter to settle satisfactorily the numerous points at issue. It was therefore decided to call a Congress of the Great Powers at which every outstanding European question should be determined. This Congress eventually assembled at Vienna, its first meeting taking place on the 20th of September. Of the different questions discussed by the powers, two appeared likely to lead to difficulties. The first of these concerned the parceling out of northeastern Germany, especially Saxony and Poland. This question created such antagonism that Austria, opposing Russia and Prussia, finally entered into a secret treaty of alliance with France and Great Britain. There seemed, in fact, a strong prospect of a new European war. The question of Naples also gave rise to much difficulty. Marat's course of action during the campaign of 1814 on the Po had been nearly as unsatisfactory to the Allies as to Napoleon, and now the two restored Bourbon kings, of France and of Spain, were making every effort to get their kinsman Ferdinand reinstated at Naples. Murat prepared for war, hoped to take advantage of the apparently approaching conflict between Austria and Russia, and towards the end of February 1815 chose the bold course of directly challenging the recognition of France. Meanwhile, what had become of Napoleon? The island of Elba, in which he was cooped up, was far too small to hold so great a man. This sign had been generally felt immediately after the signing of the treaty that sent him there, and proposals had been put forward by Bourbon partisans for his removal to the Azores and even more distant points. It is not credible that Napoleon would have ever become reconciled to his diminutive domain. It is not credible that even without provocation he would have abstained from once more taking part in that great game of politics that every instinct prompted him to, yet he did receive direct provocations that partly excused the course he eventually adopted. He had heavy expenses to meet in Elba, for no sooner there than he began to improve roads and ports, to develop mines, to infuse such animation in the island as it had never known. He had a thousand veterans in his service whom he had been allowed to keep for his personal protection, and these had to be maintained yet he could get no payment of the revenue secured to him by the Treaty of Fontainebleau. There was even a worse grievance than this. His wife and his son were denied him. 
Maria Luisa had left Paris with the King of Rome at the approach of the Allies. She had retired to Blois and had thought of joining Napoleon at Fontainebleau. But she hesitated, and presently Metternich persuaded her into various steps that gradually drew her under her father's influence. Keeping her away from Fontainebleau, Metternich eventually persuaded her to Vienna. He placed as special diplomatic representative near her a dashing, amiable, and skillful negotiator, General Count Nieberg, who was destined never to leave her and eventually to marry her. In the first few weeks after the abdication of the emperor, correspondence passed between him and the empress, and she showed some sign of attempting to join him at Elba, as he desired. Later, as Metternich's hold tightened, the correspondence was intercepted and at last dropped. As Napoleon brooded over his disasters, his mistakes, and his wrongs, he was silently but intently watching the proceedings of the Congress of Vienna, on the one hand, the state of public opinion in France on the other. In France, the all-important factor was the army, as it had been for twenty years past. The peace had set free thousands of seasoned soldiers who returned from every part of Europe to find their old flag hauled down, and a new government in power little inclined to give them employment or help. It was inevitable that Louis XVIII should reduce the strength of the army, it was equally inevitable that such a step should lead to discontent. Thousands of officers were placed on half pay. In 1816, they numbered over 16,000, which meant a trifling allowance rising from 44 francs a year for lieutenants. Among these old soldiers, the feeling against the Bourbons was doubly bitter, and not a few openly declared their hope that one whom from his favorite flower they called La Pierre La Violette would soon come to their rescue. There was another active section of the population, militant ex-Jacobins, politicians, Republicans, also actively opposed to the Bourbons and pushing eagerly towards a change of government. Probably the great mass of the people was content to be at peace once more and was, if not loyal to the new monarch, at all events opposed to change. Yet it is the active section and not the great mass that generally effects a revolution. Towards the close of February, then, it was confidently expected in high political quarters that a war was about to break out in northeastern Europe, and Napoleon judged that France was ripe to revolt against the Bourbons. He determined to risk all and turn that revolt to his profit. On the 25th of February, he embarked his handful of soldiers in several small vessels, set sail, happily escaped the observation of the British cruisers, and on the 1st of March, disembarked at Cannes. Turning away from the royalist towns of the coast of Provence, Napoleon at once marched north at the head of his little column, into the mountains towards Savoy. On the 5th, nearing Grenoble, the result of his adventure was settled. Troops had been sent to arrest him and were discovered in position barring the road. Napoleon took with him forty grenadiers, their muskets reversed, and advanced on foot. When near the opposing line, he threw open his long gray coat, showing his well-known uniform and the red ribbon of the Legion of Honor. When the soldiers saw once more that little stout man with the square head and piercing eye, their companion, their leader, who had planted the glorious flag that was carried behind him in every capital of Europe, they could resist no longer. Someone in the ranks shouted, Vive l'Empereur! 
The line broke out into vehement cheers, and the soldiers crowded around Napoleon, tearing the hated white cockades from their shakos. That scene was repeated, with variations, at every point at which the emperor met his old soldiers between Grenoble and Paris. Colonel Lebedoyere, his former aide-de-camp, ordered the drums of his regiment to be broken open, and drew from that receptacle where they had been sacredly treasured the old flag and the tricolor cockades. At Lyon, a large army under MacDonald's orders melted away at the first distant glimpse of the magician attired in the gray coat and little cocked hat. Louis XVIII, in despair, entrusted the guard to Ney, and that marshal declared he would cage the usurper, but long before Napoleon arrived, the contagion had outstripped him, and Ney and the guard were his long before they met him. The emperor accomplished the last stages of his journey in a carriage, attended by nothing more than half a dozen Polish lancers. Louis XVIII fled from Paris on the 20th of March, and a few hours later, Napoleon entered the capital unescorted and as secure as though he had never left it. His arrival at the Palace of the Tuileries occasioned a remarkable scene. It will serve to explain the peculiar quality of that demonstration if the experience of one of the eyewitnesses be recalled. General Thibault, who had fought through all the wars of the Republican Empire, had never been a zealous Bonapartist, rather the reverse. He had accepted the returned Bourbons and carried out his duty in opposing Napoleon's return. Deserted by his troops, he had quietly returned to his house in Paris with the firm intention of taking no further active share in the events of the day. But the arrival, the personality of Napoleon, was in the air. Thibault was restless and decided after dining that he would go out and indulge in a short walk. At first, he resolutely turned his steps in the opposite direction to the Tuileries, but presently the irresistible magnet began to draw. Soon, he found himself one of a great throng of old soldiers and citizens hurrying to the palace gates. Presently a traveling carriage drove up in the midst of a hurricane of cheers. A wild dash was made for it, and from the midst of the turmoil Napoleon appeared, was hoisted in strong arms from one step to another up to his old apartments on the first floor of the Tuileries, and Thibault was one of the crowd and cheering as wildly as the others. That night, a volunteer guard of general officers did sentry duty at the emperor's door. But within a day or two, everything had fallen back into the old imperial routine. Superficially, all was the same. In reality, Napoleon's position was vastly changed. Even about his person, many familiar faces were missing. Berthier, who as chief of staff had never left his side since 1796, did not choose to join him now and Seoul was appointed to that arduous post. Prince Eugene, who had taken up his residence in the dominions of his father-in-law, the King of Bavaria, showed no desire to return to Paris. Josephine the wife, the friend of early and of late days, whom he frequently visited since the divorce and still preferred to all others, had died at the Malmaison shortly after the abdication, and the old home of consular days was deserted. Talleyrand was in Vienna upholding the Bourbon interests, and there helped to define the position of Napoleon in a proclamation that was less to the credit of the powers than a confession of the genius of their opponent. The assembled monarchs and diplomatists of Europe solemnly proclaimed that Napoleon was an outlaw, 
outside the pale of social and civil relations and liable to public vengeance. It was, in plain words, an incitement to assassination, and showed that the struggle was to be of a new character, that negotiation was out of the question, and that war must be to the death. Napoleon, on his side, declared, with more or less sincerity, that he was anxious for peace, that he intended to abide by the treaties that had closed the War of 1814, and that his return to the throne was merely an incident of internal policy that concerned the French people and himself. At the same time, he lost not an hour in preparing for hostilities. But the greatest change in the position of Napoleon was that in his relation to French liberalism. Before his landing at Caen, a Republican revolution was thought to be imminent by many, and if he had profited by the agitation and converted it to his own uses, he was nonetheless bound to base his position on popular support and to reckon with the leaders of the Liberal Party. He was repeating Brumaire, but with a weaker case. How far the internal necessities of his position carried him may be judged from the fact that one of his earliest measures, March 24th, was to remove the restrictions on the press. This was followed by the selection of two pronounced liberals, Carnot and Constant, as ministers, and by the announcement that the Constitution would be amended in a particular direction. On the 22nd of April, the constitutional changes were announced. The most important was that the legislative body, or lower house, was to be elected by the direct vote of the people. In the meanwhile, Matters looked daily more like war, and the stability of the remarkable evolution of French political institutions marked by the return of Napoleon was felt to be really dependent on the event of the approaching military operations. If there was one sovereign whom Napoleon might hope to detach from the European alliance, it was his father-in-law, the Emperor of Austria, but, as it happened, his were the first troops engaged. Marat had closed his wranglings with the powers by a stroke of despair, and immediately after Napoleon's departure from Elba had ordered his army into northern Italy. He was opposed by Austria. After a short campaign, he was completely defeated at Tolentino, his army disbanded, and the Austrians occupied Naples, proclaiming Ferdinand. Marat escaped to the south of France, where he arrived just as Napoleon was on the point of leaving Paris to assume command of the French army for the last time. On the 1st of June, there was held a great ceremony known, in defiance of all chronological considerations, as the Champ de Mai. Detachments from every corps of the army paraded and received new flags, and Napoleon solemnly pronounced an oath to maintain the new constitution. Attired in a theatrical and unbecoming costume, he delivered a speech in which he appealed strongly to national and liberal sentiment and declared that as emperor, as consul, and as soldier, his every act had been dictated by his devotion to France. But these Napoleonic apologetics were not of vital importance. An Anglo-Prussian army under Wellington and Blücher were assembled close to Brussels. A large Austrian army under Schwarzenberg was nearing the Rhine, all Russia and Germany were alive with columns marching towards the French frontier. Here was the all-important problem to be solved. Could Napoleon reassert his military superiority? Were the French soldiers and generals the equals of those of a few years before? 
Were the soldiers and generals of the Allies no better than their predecessors? Chronology 20th September 1814, Congress of Vienna 3rd January 1815, Treaty of Alliance, Austria, France, and Great Britain 25 February 1815, Napoleon leaves Elba 1 March 1815, disembarks at Cannes 20 March 1815, arrives in Paris 3 May 1815, Marat defeated at Tonentino 1 June 1815, Champ de Mai. End of chapter 16